Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Welcome to the Michelle Miao Show at the Commonwealth Club of California and today's discussion with Ambassador Chantel Wong, who is joining us from Manila in the Philippines. I'm John Zipper, the club's Vice President of Media and Editorial, and I'm Michelle's co-host for her programs at the club. At the Commonwealth Club, we are continuing to produce hundreds of programs a year on a wide variety of issues, online as well as many in-person programs. So head over to commonwealthclub.org slash MMS for more upcoming programs, as well as video and audio from our past events. Happy Pride, everyone. I'm actually here in Pattaya, Thailand, celebrating Pattaya Pride. And so I hope you are all celebrating well. I want to thank the Mason Pattaya for making sure that I'm well connected while we're here in Pattaya. I wish I could turn my computer around because then you will see just how beautiful it is on beachfront. But uh, anyway, while I'm in in Thailand, I feel like, you know, this is probably the most diverse program in terms of geographical locations. We got John in San Francisco, Ambassador Wong in Manila, and Claudine in Hawaii. This is amazing. I love what technology can do. And so let's get our program started. Let's get Ambassador Wong in here. And I think, you know, a good place to start, Ambassador Wong, is your personal story, one in which your grandmother made a decision that you would leave China. Tell us the short version of why she felt it was best to take you out of China. Yes, it is a long story, so I'll try to uh, uh, keep it short. Uh, so yes, uh, you know it was the uh, the time of the Great Leap Forward, uh, and there was economic dep- deprivation. In fact, uh, as an estimate of about twenty eight to fifty five million people uh, die were dying of starvation, uh, starvation, famine uh, in in China. Uh, my parents uh, made the ultimate sacrifice to let me. Uh, have the better opportunity, and so we were uh, smuggled, uh, my grandmother and I, uh, on the bottom of a boat um, into Hong Kong uh, in 1960. I was six years old, uh, and uh, I was not to be reunited with my parents for uh, the next 21 years. Uh, I was was 27 when I returned uh, back to to Shanghai to see my parents, Uh, and so that that is uh, uh, an incredible uh, sacrifice that my mother made, um, and my parents both, but my mother uh, in particular, uh, to see that their child has a better opportunity, uh, can uh, survival, uh, can live and, and uh, prosper. And what an incredible part of history, uh, because uh, uh, I know in my generation, uh, the, the ones that have stayed, my cousins, my relatives, uh, uh, we call it Yipian Hong, a sheet of red. Uh, all those that my in my generation were sent out to the countryside to work the land. Uh, those that did survive the famine uh, with uh, barely any possibility of education opportunities. And so uh, I am very grateful uh, for the sacrifice my, my parents made. Tell us a bit about those intervening 21 years then. <clears throat> Excuse me. What was your upbringing like, and 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 what were your influences during that time? Yeah, so I talk about that a lot uh, because uh, I came out from from uh, China. I was uh, I was a naughty child, <laughs> uh, and I was sent to boarding school uh, in Macau, uh, and it was a Notre Dame nuns and Franciscan priests. Uh, so I was raised by nuns. Uh, I was given a a. a, a, a uh, uh, I was named after a saint, 
uh, actually St. Jane de Chantel. Uh, uh, years later, I didn't realize uh, that, uh, that she is the patron saint of, um, of the forgotten people. Uh, very much apropos of uh, what I'm here to do. Uh, but uh, yes, in the intervening years, uh, so my, my first uh, uh, school was Santa Rosa de Lima in, in uh, Macau. And uh, when I arrived there, uh, they said, um, what's your name? Well, they, they gave me an English name uh, or a Western name, uh, and it was Irene. And so they said, I said, well, my name is Irene. They go, oh, no, 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 there's too many other Irenes. Uh, we, we think uh, you need to pick up Chantel. Uh, and so that was actually my first Western word. It's a four-hour uh, boat ride from Hong Kong to Macau, and I spent the four hours writing my name, Chantel, Chantel. It's the first Western word that, that I learned. Uh, and uh, so... From there, I was basically raised by by nuns. Uh, my my grandmother uh, was there, always there to, to take care of me. But uh, intellectually, uh, education, uh, you know. Uh, so I'm still a practice, practicing Catholic <laughs> to this day, uh, because of the the uh, early bringing uh, uh, brought on by by the by the Catholic nuns. Uh, and we went from there uh, to from Hong Kong uh, to. Okinawa. I, I spent my early elementary school years in in Okinawa, Japan, uh, and then uh, high school in Guam. Uh, and so uh, it's really interesting uh, that that I know firsthand uh, of the job that I am actually doing. Uh, I know firsthand the struggles and the challenges of the the people that are in this region. Uh, and so it's very much uh, uh, opportunity. Uh, from the, that experience uh, to bring forward uh, of what I'm doing uh, in this job. I can't wait to get into the, you know, an in-depth conversation about the position and the role and what we could potentially be doing, especially for LGBTQ rights. But it is Pride Month, and tradition here is that we ask a coming out story. And I know that I already asked permission, so it doesn't have to be the coming out story. However, anything that you can share about, you know, coming out and especially, right, your experiences in the various diverse roles in government I know John just did a talk with a historian who covered, you know, the experience of experiences of LGBTQ people in government, and it hadn't always been the best. So we're quite curious to hear from you anything that you might be able to share. Yeah. Um, so it's very interesting. Um, so I mentioned um, that I was separated from my parents the first time I went home and saw them uh, when I was 27. Uh, it took another uh, quite a few years. That that was in um, uh, 1980 when I when I went home, uh, or 82 actually. Uh, it was not until 1990, uh, eight years later. Uh, no, eight, 18 years later, uh, when I got uh, my parents out of China. Uh, and so I got them situated. Uh, they they had a, a little apartment in San Francisco, uh, and they were living uh, like right off of Castro Street. It's 18 in Sanchez. Uh, those of you in in San Francisco know this right by Dolores Park. Uh, and uh, I was trying to figure out how to come out to my my parents, uh, the ones that I uh, my parents that I have not known and not grown up with, uh, and they certainly don't, don't know me very well, and I don't know them very well. So 
they have been living in that in that area for for quite a bit, uh, quite a few years. And I finally took got enough courage to say, uh, you know, one day my, my my father was out of out somewhere, and I thought it was easier to come out to my mother. Uh, and so I said, Mom, um, uh, I'm gay, and she says, Isn't that lesbian? <laughs> <laughs> because she had already spent uh, quite a few years <laughs> in that bubble of Castro <laughs> and know all about it. So uh, my parents, turns out, they're very, very accepting uh, uh, of, of my lifestyle uh, and certainly uh, accepted when I was uh, when I had a partner and, and my daughter that we raised together. Uh, and they're, you know, just a wonderful, uh, wonderful people that I uh, missed. Uh, basically, 30 years of my life uh, have not had the the pleasure of having them as my parents, and and then I spent the next 30 years uh, being being their child, and now they're my child. <laughs> you know, you know how they as they age, they become your child, right? So uh, that's that's sort of it. But you know, in terms of coming out uh, in a at work, it's never been. An issue for me. I I've never been closeted. Uh, the last time I was here, I had a partner. Uh, we had challenges with visas. Uh, this is 1999 to 2002 was the first time I was here. Uh, we uh, actually went to Vermont and uh, got civil union. Uh, this is the year 2001. Uh, early, early on, uh, way before marriage equality, but Vermont was this first state. Uh, that that allowed uh, civil union. We got uh, civil union. Came back to here uh, to Manila, and uh, the bank recognized early. <laughs> very progressive of them. They recognized our marriage or our civil union, and took uh, uh, our application to the Department of Foreign Affairs and and got her a uh, spousal visa. Before that, she was on. Uh, Domestic help visa, which didn't go over very well, <laughs> if you can imagine. <laughs> wow. Well, you're you're in a very visible position now. Obviously, an internationally visible position. Do you see yourself as an LGBTQ role model, and if so, how do you handle that? Absolutely. You know, President Biden uh, nominated me in July. Uh, of uh, last year, and uh, when the nomination came out, uh, you know, I'm the first uh, open lesbian. There's probably many before that, but not open. First open lesbian and first open LGBTQ person of color to be uh, ambassador, uh, and I carry that uh, burden heavily on my shoulder because I know, uh, you know, the, I'm looked upon to for for uh, uh, both representational, but also the, the work that I deal with uh, also uh, have impact on our community. Uh, but uh, back before, uh, you know, about 30 years ago, uh, President, Biden, uh, President Clinton uh, nominated Jim Hormel. Uh, if you remember from San Francisco, uh, he just passed away recently. There was a big uh, celebration of his life uh, in San Francisco. Uh, th that was 30 plus years ago, uh, and that was very tough uh, getting him through confirmation process, uh, if I remember uh, correctly. Uh, and he was named ambassador to Luxembourg, I think. Uh, and since then, uh, so thir 30 years since then, there's been 24 
plus uh, gay white men that have been ambassador uh, for the United States, uh, both career foreign service and political appointees. And so uh, this is a first, uh, or a double first, uh, but I'm uh, but it's very lonely here, so I'm hoping that uh, I get joined by many more uh, very soon. It's time. Do you mind if I follow up with that? Because obviously the James Hormel Congressional Senate fight was kind of epic. Um, and yes, there have been ambassadors of various levels and, and roles who have, who have been LGBTQ approved uh, since then, but you were confirmed by an overwhelming bipartisan vote in the U.S. Senate, which doesn't seem to be able to do much at all bipartisan these days, it seems like. I mean, how did that come out? Did you have to meet with a lot of folks and talk? Was there resistance, or were they already open for you? Um, let me just say that, that t things have moved on. It, wasn't, it was not an issue uh, when my nomination came up. Uh, the, the, the community celebrated it. Clearly, it was a historic nomination, uh, and uh, but it, it actually that wasn't even any part of the conversation. Uh, the the fights uh, about my confirmation, and there were some. Uh, I got held back uh, by a particular senator, but it was because of substance and a policy uh, disagreement between uh, those in the in the Senate, uh, particularly the Republicans in the Senate and. Uh, the Biden administration. So um, a lot of it, uh, yes, I had to do a lot of uh, meetings, uh, meeting with uh, senators, uh, talking to them that I'm not really going to, uh, I'm here to listen to them. Uh, I, I care about their issues. Uh, I'm here to uh, uh, come back and tell them uh, if there's uh, challenges that they they think uh, we're not doing the right thing, uh, and certainly you know I'm uh, uh, nominated and and uh, um, I'm part of the Biden administration, so I carry that uh, those policies uh, forward. Uh, but uh, the biggest biggest uh, thing that that helped was uh, Senator Tammy Duckworth uh, as part of being Asian American. Uh, in the community. So I, I actually have spent a lot of time in Washington. Uh, when I first arrived to Washington, I didn't see very many Asian Americans uh, that were part of the uh, political process and certainly weren't seeking uh, careers in public service. And so I started an organization, a nonprofit organization, that was very specifically to encourage young Asian Americans to seek careers in public service. Uh, and so I've been very much a part of the uh, uh, the uh, political process uh, in the pu public pu policy debates in, in Washington. So I'm a known quantity. Uh, and uh, because of that, I've got, I had so much support, both from the Asian American community, of course, but also the, the, uh, the gay community uh, that, that uh, are part of Washington. Uh, and they came out very strongly uh, in my support. But Senator Duckworth uh, took it upon herself uh, to really push for my nomination to move forward on the Senate floor. Uh, she did a lot of uh, work with uh, the leadership. Uh, she talked to everybody she could. Uh, and in the end, yeah, I, I got even uh, a, a minority leader, uh, uh, Mitch McConnell, 
uh, voted for me. Uh, so I got the, uh, the, the final vote uh, was 66 uh, to 31, uh, and it was uh, 59, uh, 49 uh, Democrats because Senator Lujan had a, a stroke and he couldn't vote. Uh, and so I got 17 uh, Republicans. It's it's quite uh, substantial. I'm pretty proud of that, but it, it was a lot of work, a lot of work from everybody uh, that came out to support me, uh, particularly the Asian American community and the and the LGBTQ community. Uh, and so my, my my swearing in, by the way, uh, we I got sworn in by Secretary Yellen at the, the cash room of the uh, Treasury Department uh, and all the leadership of the gay and lesbian community were there to be part of that celebration. So I'm very, very uh, pleased and proud of that. Yeah, that is so incredible. What a great story to share, especially during Pride Month. Well, uh, I, I know a good number of people who are joining us today, they really want to talk about the economy, the, the, the economic policies, and we're going to get to that. But before we do that, I think it's very important to understand the Asian Development Bank. You know, exa what exactly is its role? And, and talk to us about you know, its role in, in, in carrying out the United States foreign and economic policy goals. Yeah, well, thank you for that question. Uh, so a ADB, the Asian Development Bank, is uh, perhaps uh, next to the World Bank, it's the largest regional bank. It's 55-year history. Uh, it, it is there to hear, here to, to help the, the region. Uh, it covers countries all the way uh, as um, uh, west uh, from here, as west as uh, Georgia and Armenia, uh, and as east uh, as the Cook Islands, all the Pacific Islands, and then as north as Mongolia. So it's a huge uh, swath of the earth, uh, 68 member countries, uh, 46 of them are borrowing member countries, uh, and the, the uh, roughly about $25 billion a year of lending. Uh, and so it's all about economic development uh, in the region. It has been uh, very much an infrastructure bank until recently, uh, 20, uh, their strategy 2030 uh, basically laid out a guide post on uh, that they would be looking into health and education and other uh, things that are very much important for economic development in, in the region. Uh, and then, of course, uh, climate change is now the, the biggest threat and the biggest uh, economic uh, uh, threat to all of us uh, with temperatures like 100, I read 122 in India recently. Uh, that we're all feeling the effects of uh, climate change and it's real here. Um, with 68 countries, and I was surprised there are member countries who are not part of that region. Like, I mean, I, I can understand, obviously, Asia and Pacific Rim countries, but uh, Denmark and Germany, are they, what, what's their in involvement and what's their interest in this? And are they donators or, or funders of capital, or do they have other interest in it? They're donors. Uh, so the, the non-regional uh, members are particularly their donors um, uh, of, of the bank. Uh, so we provide concessional lending, credit rating of this uh, institution, uh, we're AAA uh, rated. Uh, for many countries that can't borrow uh, on their own, 
in the capital markets, uh, they come to us to borrow. And some of them uh, at the poor, poor level uh, uh, countries can borrow at a more uh, concessional uh, loan terms. Uh, and so, yes, uh, the board it consists of all those member countries. Um, there are 12 uh, board seats, uh, US, Japan, and China. We hold single seats. Uh, so I represent the United States here. Uh, I have an alternate executive director that uh, also helps me. Uh, but Japan does too, and so does China. And then the rest of the countries, the rest 65 members kind of share uh, the, the other seats. Uh, and they sometimes rotate, sometimes depending on their share, uh, maybe don't rotate, uh, have the executive director position or the alternate uh, executive director position. And they come together with with uh, statements at the board uh, to approve or, or uh, not approve uh, projects and programs. Let's get into the issues, some of the issues that you had mentioned earlier. Um, let's start with COVID-19 and the fallout from it. The ADB in its history has done, you know, has, has, has helped, right, countries within that region when we've had other outbreaks like SARS, HIV, AIDS. And so if you could share with us kind of how it's affected the member countries and the region when it comes to COVID-19, um, let's begin with that. Yeah, so uh, certainly the economies of many of these countries are um, took a huge hit when uh, the pandemic uh, came and shutdowns uh, across the region. Uh, many of the countries are relying on tourism uh, as a uh, source of income. Uh, that you know went away. Uh, so the bank. Uh, came together very quickly to be able to do budget support uh, for lots of the countries. Uh, and many of them, uh, you know, uh, have huge challenges uh, still. And uh, we're just beginning to see uh, the, the opening up, uh, the tur tourism returning slowly. Uh, definitely seeing here Manila traffic is getting <laughs> bad again. Uh, I guess during COVID, there was hardly anybody on the road. Uh, but but uh, having said that, it's still not up to the part uh, where it needs to be. Uh, certainly, the, the bank also put together a vaccine facility uh, to help many of these countries uh, uh, buy vaccines and get vaccination rates up. Uh, and so, uh, say for example, here at the bank, the bank actually had been closed for two years. Uh, we're still not at uh, 50. Per uh, we're at 50% uh, uh, operations uh, by the summer. Uh, I think I hear August 1st is when we're going back to the the normal, the new normal uh, here, where people are coming back. Uh, but you know that that even in the microcosm of of uh, ADB. Uh, all the support services, people who work for the bank, uh, thank God that the bank kept them on. During the COVID times, they had people coming and living here. Uh, and because of isolation, they to do the work, uh, they're not, uh, they don't need to go home. So they provide all these kind of services uh, here at the bank. Uh, but, but yeah, they, they, they did quite a bit uh, to help uh, bringing the economies 
try to bring the economies back. Uh, but now we're faced with uh, another uh, crisis, uh, and that is uh, fuel costs have uh, skyrocketed, uh, the uh, food costs uh, as well. Uh, I'm seeing it uh, very much so here in, in Manila, uh, but it's now caused a uh, um, political crisis uh, in countries like uh, Sri Lanka, uh, right, because of the, they were battered by the by the pandemic, and now on top of that, uh, it's the uh, fuel and, and food costs as, as a result of the unprovoked uh, invasion of uh, Russia on Ukraine. Uh, and we're seeing that uh, across the board in all of our countries. Uh, and ones that are more tied to the Russian economy, which is the Central Asian Republic uh, countries, uh, but also uh, the isolated countries like the Pacific Islands, uh, which relies heavily on tourism. So uh, many of these countries are, are coming to the bank to help ask for help. Um, it's it's a this big challenge here. Um, though, just sticking with the pandemic briefly, I guess, Countries obviously pursued lots of different strategies, especially early on, but even well, even through to today, um, does the bank was the bank responding to requests for help from countries, or does the bank have like does it proactively go out and say suggest countries do certain policies when it comes to something like the pandemic? What what are what's your role? I I would think that would have to be kind of a very political and kind of touchy position to be in. Well, so so it is a bank. <laughs> that means it lends money, and so we have to have uh, people who want to borrow uh, and borrow on concessional terms. And so we can dictate some uh, uh, policy reforms, which we think uh, are necessary for either energy uh, dealing with climate or or uh, you know. Uh, getting the capital markets correctly, if they're borrowing for that. Uh, and so we do tie some policy reforms around that and certainly what they call a policy-based lending, that the, now the countries are uh, willing to borrow on concessional terms, uh, uh, lending or money to to help with whatever they're, they're trying to, to do and budget support or uh, propping up some of the the budget problems in in the um, in their agencies or the departments, but they come with little strings uh, now with policy reform uh, agendas, and so that's how we're we're dealing with many of these. With some of the issues that we talked about, so you mentioned right climate change. I mean that's affecting the entire globe. The, the uh, war in Ukraine, the Russian invasion in Ukraine, the disruption of the supply chain, um, rise in food costs, <laughs> rise in fuel costs, and then, of course, the fallout of COVID-19. How do you think that the 68-plus members within the region uh, could come together to address, you know, these concerns, these issues that we're talking about? And, you know, what countries have opportunities for economic growth and power? Well, we, yeah, so uh, that's a great question. We're actually going to, today and tomorrow, we're actually doing a, a, a retreat uh, to to uh, talk through some of these. Uh, I mean, all the countries are in dire straits, all the borrowing countries are in dire straits. And so uh, make uh, 
much more challenge because of the issues that you just you just articulated, right? It's the uh, pandemic, uh, the, uh, the knockoff effects of the Russian invasion, uh, and, and then climate change. And so there's no shortage of uh, what we call little fires everywhere. Uh, there are Mongolia, Laos, all of those are all having challenges. Uh, and so uh, we have to come come together. Uh, basically, this is this is uh, the bank that is uh, going to be helping these countries. Uh, and so our, our conversations are all about what's the best option? Uh, how do we make sure that that uh, uh, it's not just uh, money out the door, but that there's uh, if impacts uh, that we can show uh, for for the dollars that we do spend, uh, whether it's uh, propping up better health systems, and we, that's what we learned uh, as well uh, during for uh, based on the COVID uh, response, uh, we we didn't have good health systems uh, in place, and so the bank is now looking into health uh, more so uh, whether it's uh, setting up a, a regional CDC-like uh, organization uh, or, uh, uh, you know, making sure that the hospitals and, and uh, health clinics have the capacity. Uh, and so uh, very much so that the, the uh, all the members are coming together. There's a natural, um, I, I don't want to call it split, but there's a natural dividing line between the donor countries and the borrowing countries. Uh, and so we're trying to make sure that the best use of the money that, that we as donors put into the institution are going to the highest value uh, and get, gets us the best uh, results. Uh, and that's what I spend a lot of time uh, looking at. Uh, on the climate, for example, uh, we have a lot of uh, coal assets. Uh, the bank uh, just came out with this new policy uh, on energy, and we've said that we're not going to um, uh, support any coal or finance any coal projects uh, from here on. Uh, but there are a lot of assets that are already in place, old coal plants, that we're going to try to figure out how to retire them and reduce carbon footprint for these countries. And each country uh, uh, in COP26 and leading on to there's going to be COP27 coming, uh, have all uh, committed to a net zero, uh, reducing their carbon footprint. And uh, they're coming to the bank to ask for help in, in getting them there, right, to the goals that they have set up for themselves. You, you mentioned earlier inflation. I'm sorry. You mentioned uh, inflation and, and that's Running, I mean, oftentimes a lot of countries are dealing with it as if it's their own internal political problem. But of course, as you mentioned, it's all around the world and certainly hitting uh, the poorer people harder with the wages not rising and, and food and fuel costs obviously rising. Um, a, is there anything, do you, have, do you have anything, any sense of, of I don't want to ask you to, to look into a crystal ball, but I mean, is this likely to be a long-lasting problem? And B, are, are, is the whole country, the world going to kind of continue to go through it together, if you will? Uh, you know, everyone kind of experiencing the, this inflation problem. 
or will that kind of bifurcate as, as different countries take different approaches? What do you think? Um, I think everybody's scrambling right now because it is hitting all of the countries and they could be like Sri Lanka. They're all teetering, uh, very much in, on the, on the brink. Uh, there's also ex other exogenous, uh, factors, uh, the zero tolerance of COVID, uh, in China, uh, brings up a, a different, uh, challenge, right? Uh, that, that it could have significant uh, economic impacts on China itself. And this region depends so much on China, uh, trading partners, uh, they provide infrastructure around uh, the region. Uh, if, if China's economy uh, does have a, a significant uh, dip, it, it will have, uh, well, not just global, uh, not just region, but global impacts. Uh, as well, because uh, the, many of the economies are so tied uh, to China. We see that uh, in Mongolia, when China closes borders, uh, it was its largest trading partner, and it could not get their goods across anymore. And because of that, their Mongolia's economy is is uh, having huge challenges. So, uh, yes, there are all these crises that that are going on. We think that that uh, if we're not careful, there's going to be even more, and so we're uh, uh, um, watching cautiously. Uh, but but it is uh, it it is a challenging time, uh, and you're right. The most vulnerable uh, will get hit the hardest, uh, and it's always the case. Uh, and 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 so we're also ensuring whatever policies and, and programs we've put together that we target uh, the most vulnerable as well, right? Can, can, well. Yeah. Can we stay on that? I mean, you gave an incredible example of how we can address climate change, but how about the marginalized communities, the indigenous communities who will get hit hard, um, gender equity, right? Like women, especially in positions and places in which they have no financial power, uh, and also, yes, the LGBTQIA plus community, uh, which is vulnerable in many parts of the region that we're talking about. Yeah, uh, you know, in, in many parts of the region, we still have criminal laws uh, and certainly discriminatory practices uh, against the uh, LGBTQ uh, plus community. Uh, and because of that, uh, the community is shy to come out for uh, to access uh, health benefits, for example. I mean, I, I talk about COVID uh, vaccines. Uh, they're unlikely to go to a government facility to go get vaccinated because then they get, uh, you know, targeted uh, for other uh, other things. So there are uh, on the on the economic scale, they're probably on the uh, bottom rung of of the economic rank, uh, vulnerable of the vulnerable. So uh, we are, uh, one of the things that I'm uh, working on is is a, uh, the ADB is looking at its uh, safeguard policy. Uh, and by the way, they haven't done a, a review uh, since 10 years ago. So it's the opportunity, it was actually the reason why I decided to come out of retirement. Uh, I, I had retired from, from government 
seven years ago uh, and and actually started a new career. Uh, but I came out of retirement because uh, the uh, safeguards policy is undergoing review and it's, like I said, 10 years. They may not do it again for another 10 years. Uh, and we will be looking at, at, le at least from the U.S. side, uh, we will be uh, looking at how do we get gender and gender uh, inclusion, uh, SOGI, sexually oriented gender identified individuals, uh, to be part of these safeguards review, that you do no harm to these communities uh, in, in terms of gender uh, and gender in, and social inclusion. Uh, and it's about inclusive growth. If you leave any uh, population out of your economic uh, growth equation, you're not going to be potentially uh, growing to, to the extent that you need. Uh, and so that is going to be my... <laughs> That is actually my, my major focus uh, here on safeguards, both on, on gender and SOGI, but also on climate. Uh, and that, that we will be looking at. And my mandate is very clear. President Biden um, signed an executive order on his first day uh, that there should be no discrimination against uh, LGBTQ uh, plus uh, individuals. Uh, and, and then uh, he followed on a, a month later with a uh, presidential memorandum that directs all agencies uh, that provides foreign assistance or funding in the foreign uh, affairs world, uh, foreign assistance world, that we uh, also push for uh, human rights of, uh, of LGBTQ. Uh, and so that's, that's my clear mandate uh, from, from the U.S. side. Now, you've been at the bank before. Um, what's changed in, in the way the bank is running, the, the issues you see, um, the ease or difficulty with, you know, the, the, the bank, the, the, the coalition of all these, these countries that are there working together? There must have been quite a bit that's different this time, or am I wrong? Uh, well, there's some there's some progress uh, I see vis-a-vis -vis the the uh, LGBTQ community. Uh, in fact, uh, this afternoon we're celebrating Pride here at, at ADB, and I'm the <laughs> feature speaker. I'm very popular uh, the, this month because there's everywhere uh, I'm speaking. Uh, just yesterday I spoke at USAID, uh, and so uh, it's good that uh, the American Chamber of Commerce here in the Philippines also uh, had me as their feature speaker. Uh, so that is what I saw. When I came here 20 years ago, I came with my partner, uh, and I, it was very lonely, that definitely for sure. I was not closeted, but I was the only one. Uh, and uh, today, uh, when we celebrate Pride with uh, the LGBTQ friends, uh, there is an affinity group here, uh, and they, uh, even though they feel... Uh, and we did a survey. Uh, they said that uh, uh, they still don't feel comfortable coming out. They, that they still feel their managers discriminate against them if they do come out. Uh, and so that's uh, still going to be a work in progress. Uh, and hopefully my role and my position here uh, and my speaking out uh, will help change uh, uh, attitudes and, and um, um, uh, you know, uh, processes and, and uh, behavior. Uh, that, that's what I'm hoping uh, that, that it will do. Uh, and 
that uh, you know we're also starting to look at in terms of the policy areas, uh, uh, not just doing no harm on the safeguard side, but looking at uh, countries like uh, in South Asia, like Nepal and, and Bangladesh, where these countries have culturally had a third gender, uh, the hedras, right? They they uh, actually are uh, sought uh, sought after when a baby is born to do blessings and whatnot. And uh, so we just uh, the board just passed a uh, social protection uh, policy based lending that when I talked about policy based uh, assistance that we we do provide, uh, we're looking at uh, gender identity and inclusion in Bangladesh. So it's slowly, uh, but but we are making some progress uh, in that front. So I'm I'm hoping that I could be the catalyst uh, for for a lot more. It just sounds like, um, I mean, I said this in our prep call, but you're called in from retirement to kind of save save the day. I mean, not not like you know the the world in a sense, but contribute to a point in our our history, I guess, our history of humanity in which we all must work together. And so, while we spent a good you know chunk of time talking about today's most pressing issues, it did give us you know grim picture of where we're at. Almost, we're understanding this as you know we're on the brink of some kind of economic and political calamity if we're not careful. And so if you wouldn't mind just kind of giving us a little bit of your you know, perspective of how, what we could be, what we need to be focused on during this very critical moment, um, you know, is it revitalizing the economy in, in any way that we can, uh, you know, maybe share a couple of short-term goals that realistically, practically we can achieve. Well, huh. Uh, I I have come here with uh, I, I call it three C's. <laughs> um, so happens that I'm my name is also uh, C, right? And it's it's uh, uh, COVID. Uh, you know, ensuring that we do recover uh, from COVID uh, and and that recover uh, robustly. Uh, and that is going to be a challenge. As I I mean, it's not. It is grim, but I, I see signs of hope. There's green shoots uh, here. Uh, you know, I had dinner with um, a former governor of, of Guam uh, last night, and he's looking at uh, the tourism coming back uh, and that the economy uh, is able to uh, move uh, in a way that there are going to be uh, exchanges. Uh, and he's he's very optimistic uh, for Guam anyway. Uh, the, the Filipinos uh, going to Guam for for uh, tourism. Uh, he's also talking to Korea and and uh, Japan and and Taiwan, uh, where they all want to go to Guam. Nice beaches in Guam. Uh, so there is green shoots, uh, and and we want to be able to have those nascent. To help that along, right? Uh, my second C is is uh, climate, and we talked about that. And I think we're making some progress around climate. The countries are are recognizing uh, the the challenges, the the effects of climate. They're feeling it. 
uh, here in the region. And the climate war is not gonna is gonna be won here in the Pacific uh, region, a Asia Pacific region. And so they are recognizing it. Countries are recognizing it. The people are recognizing it. And so they're willing and ready to make changes. Uh, you know, whether it's uh, change of fuel fuel uh, sources or uh, doing more uh, uh, renewable uh, energy uh, and they're willing to make that commitment uh, they need they just need some help around that and then my my uh, last C is is uh, com competition and competition uh, getting the bank in a place that uh, we can compete uh, on an equal footing uh, allowing uh, you know, we get efficiencies and allowing these dollars that we do put in here to go to the best uh, use and the best effective use. Uh, and the, the bank is is uh, agreeing with all of that, you know, and we're really putting things into place to, to ensure that, uh, you know, versus what's happening with what's provided by uh, the other, you know, by China, for example, uh, the Belt and Road Initiative. So those are all things that I see uh, positive signs, uh, and that we we it's not without hard work uh, and challenges and getting people to agree to to these these initiatives. Uh, but I do think uh, we can find uh, common ground and move forward on on all of them. Your, your second C on the climate, uh, you mentioned, or you said the climate war will be won here in the Asia Pacific. Could you talk a bit about that? Did you mean there's momentum or toward addressing it, or it's the most acute need to address it there, or what? Do, or do you already see leadership there uh, on this issue? Um, so I say that because both uh, the, one of the, some of the largest emitters of uh, greenhouse gases are here. And some of the huge, most imp most huge impacts are here. You know, countries are going to go under, like the Pacific Islands, uh, even low-lying countries like Bangladesh. Uh, the impacts are huge, uh, and uh, I mentioned India with with its high uh, temperature. So it, it it is the emissions reductions that are going to be taken uh, that will have the biggest impact. Uh, here uh, and and then adaptation. We want to make sure that we provide uh, support to countries to adopt to rising temperature, rising you know, because maybe some of these things we can't stop. The, the, uh, we're going to try very hard, and many countries are making these commitments uh, in terms of changing fuel fuel sources uh, to more renewables. Uh, but it it is we feel it here. Much more, uh, and the uh, and the vulnerable people do <laughs> further than anybody else. We're hearing good news in terms of the LGBTQIA plus movement and our progress for equality um, out of Asia. And what I mean by that is, at least on the topic of marriage equality, right? We have a country like Taiwan who passed marriage equality. You know, Japan's working on it. I think there are some baby step victories here in Thailand with regards to marriage equality. Uh, what are your thoughts in terms of, you know, LGBTQ progress and maybe uh, calling attention to some of the countries you think have 
a good opportunity to keep moving forward. Yeah, I, I want to say India, uh, they had uh, a Supreme Court case, right? And uh, hopefully there's, there's uh, in terms of discrimination, uh, Supreme Court, they don't have marriage equality yet. Uh, but but um, it's funny because I, I came here uh, as a symbol uh, of LGBTQ uh, representation, uh, actually, these issues have never been my uh, my issues. Uh, I've uh, in San Francisco. I started my career in San Francisco, by the way. Uh, if for those of you that don't know, I was a and Claudine probably knows I was a sewage engineer uh, and worked in the city and county of San Francisco. So, uh, you know, I I do I, I I know how to do sewage and I know how to do budget and finance. Uh, LGBTQ issues are have not been my mind. I'm learning, uh, and I've got a lot of people that are helping me uh, around that. So uh, what I do know is really snippets of people that have told me. So for example, uh, personally, I have a, I have a, a couple uh, that uh, two two guys that have um, gotten married and want to uh, have brought that case uh, in the Indian Supreme Court. Uh, on marriage equality because it really their their case is based on uh, that, that it's uh, recognized and accepted in the United States and wants to seek reciprocity uh, in India, for example. And so uh, the bank here, but also the World Bank also have done a lot of uh, uh, re research analysis on what these countries uh, how far they they have come, but also how far they need to go uh, in both the legal uh, framework, uh, legal discrimination uh, cases, but also uh, for uh, the, the exclusion, the economic ex uh, cost of excluding a community like that, what that what that means for economic development and how we should be looking at it, uh, uh, you know, for uh, inclusive growth uh, going forward. Now you're you're not the first person to uh, refer to San Francisco politics as sewage, but how did you go from that experience locally to uh, to the ADB? I mean, what did was was it a natural growth further and further into economics and such, or did you make a pointed decision at some point to to get go more toward development? It's interesting you ask that, John, because uh, I started uh, at ADB. Uh, as a level four environmental engineer, uh, environmental policy analyst, actually, because of my sewage experience <laughs> in San Francisco, <laughs> uh, I, I did I did my uh, uh, undergraduate at the University of Hawaii in civil engineering, but I did a, a graduate degree. My first graduate degree was uh, in uh, water and wastewater from Cal. Uh, a, across the bay from you uh, from San Francisco so uh, it was a natural <laughs> uh, a natural uh, set of events for me to pick up uh, a job at the time uh, for this with the city and county of San Francisco as they're as uh, operating their sewage treatment plant by the way southeast plant uh, if you are familiar with it uh, in in the Bayview Hunters Point area so I, I, I cut my teeth <laughs> as a sewage engineer there uh, but but it, it's was it uh, for me personally? It was an evolution. Uh, understanding operating a sewage treatment plan, then realizing that policies and uh, regulations and money 
uh, drive what you do actually on the ground, uh, what you build uh, through facilities or pipes or, or uh, uh, you know, how you operate is all determined by regulation, policy, and money. Uh, that's what drove me to go to get another degree in, in at the Kennedy School uh, in uh, you know environment. I took courses in environmental law and and uh, public finance, and I said I was going to go to Washington to to fix this problem. <laughs> that's how I ended up in Washington uh, 30, 30 some years ago. Uh, doing environmental policy uh, and really chasing the dollars and the money that uh, are, is needed uh, to solve these public public policy issues. Were you ever tempted to run for office? No, <laughs> never. I'm always there to, to help others to run for office. And certainly I've spent a lot of time on the ground uh, uh, you know, every cycle, uh, presidential and even uh, uh, um, even uh, off off cycle races. Uh, I've uh, spent a lot of time. Uh, they always so I was retired. As I mentioned, I was retired for 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 seven years. So I spent a lot of time going to uh, uh, ca doing campaigns. Uh, so I was in Arizona for the presidential campaign, and uh, we were able to uh, uh, you know help uh, win uh, Arizona and then I uh, went to more because of uh, I was asked or I was told that the voting is so important and exercising our right to vote was so critical uh, by by the, the person that I spent the last four years uh, you know photographing and and uh, being his photographer and videographer he told us that we should never we should always uh, go out and vote like we've never voted before and so I did that uh, and, and then I went to Georgia <laughs> uh, where by the way Asian American votes from 2016 to 2020 Asian American vote uh, increased by 91 percent incredible uh, and so getting our community uh, have a voice to come out and vote uh, exercise their voice uh, is had been my huge uh, uh, lives work uh, as well um, so <laughs> that's that's what I've been doing yeah yeah well I you know um, I mean here, everyone who's listening is watching is probably very inspired uh, and comforted to know that you're you're in this role and to help you know contribute to saving us <laughs> in a lot of ways, but also proud uh, you know as a person of color who've made history, a person of uh, color and LGBTQIA plus who's also made history. So thank you so much for all that you do. I have one question that I've personally um, received. And it's a message from somebody who's been watching but too shy to put it out there in public. So what? why not? I'm going to ask it. I, you know, I've been thinking about asking it, not asking it. But you talk about serious stuff all the time, so I might as well. It's Pride Month, whatever. Um, the, yeah. person wants, the person said, you, know, you mentioned a couple times that you had been partnered. So leads them to believe that you're not partnered currently. And so if that is the case, um, what is your, I can't believe I'm asking it, what is your type? <laughs> hey, we're all queer. 
You don't have to answer it. I just thought. Well, no, it's interesting you you say that because uh, first of all, um, what happened to me? Uh, uh, I, I mentioned that we had to get married to get um, a, a visa situation uh, sorted out. Uh, we. Uh, had a very uh, acrimonious divorce and and uh, split up uh, over the fight of our child uh, and went back to the U.S. Uh, and two years after I did that, uh, the Pope decided to visit the, the Philippines and and uh, they publicly revoked my my ex partner's visa, even though we were split up and we were no longer here. Uh, so I wish I had a partner to come <laughs> to to uh, Manila to test that case again, uh, which I don't know where things are uh, if they do uh, provide uh, a, a diplomat because I'm here on a diplomatic visa. Uh, and so, uh, having said that, I am looking for. Uh, <laughs> I, I, very challenging to be here by myself single, uh, moving into a home, uh, getting adjusted. I, I have told all my friends uh, that uh, I don't have a partner, but I have a Google Sheets and everybody got to sign up to come and be my diplomatic wife. It doesn't matter what sex you are. I, I'm looking for people to come and help me do parties and uh, plan parties and, uh, and um, help me, uh, you know, I, I think I need more than one wife uh, at the moment, actually. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Thank you so much for answering that question. So whoever sent it, there you go. And, uh, you know, I'm going to join that list. My wife and I, since you need multiple people to join. I need multiple. Definitely. I need multiple. <laughs> and we're, we're kind of in the same time I, zone I right now. Yeah, one one of the one of the, the privileges. Sometimes I think it's a burden. I had uh, I have representational uh, plates uh, in China, uh, and uh, it's incredible. They they delivered all of that uh, earlier this week, uh, and uh, the volume is like it took up all of my closet space. Uh, the the uh, kitchen closet space. <laughs> it's a it's three different sets. Uh, so there's an ambassador uh, set of plates, uh, you know, and it's all salad bowls and soups and you know, like the all of it. It's a 20, 20, 40 place setting for uh, ambassador and the their golden rim with a golden eagle on them. And then I have the a treasury set uh, that is golden rim with the treasury seal and then there's a, a fine china <laughs> it's uh nortaki so i have a lot of dishes and also glasses they're uh um white wine red wine uh, brandy it, it, they all have these seals on them and they're all very tightly controlled and inventory that i cannot uh, let anything uh, out of my sight uh plus forks and knives and they're all silver so Somebody needs to be cleaning them because they tarnish. Uh, so I need I need more than multiple wives, okay, to help me do party. And I think I'm supposed to be having parties for forty plus people all the time because I need to use these plates. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> well, speaking of party, we know that you have so much to do and you've got to go celebrate Pride Month with your peers. And so we thank you again for joining us for this program at the Commonwealth Club. Thank you to all of you who've joined us. And I'm going to go. I'm going to go enjoy Pattaya Pride here in Thailand. So if you can, you can travel, you can do that. That's part of helping the economy as well. So happy Pride, everyone. Back to you, John, for your last words. Thank you again to our special guest on today's program, Ambassador Chantel Wong. Thanks to the APA Heritage Foundation. And last but not least, thanks to all of you watching or listening to this program wherever in the world you are. You can find more programs again at commonwealthclub.org. Stay safe and have a good rest of your week. Goodbye. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support. Hello from the employees of the Commonwealth Club. Thank you for tuning into this podcast. Before we begin, we'd like to take a moment to acknowledge the international crisis taking place in Ukraine and highlight an organization working to support the most vulnerable of all the victims, the children. Voices of Children is a Ukrainian organization dedicated to ensuring no child is left to deal with the trauma of war alone. Working at the front lines of the Russian invasion in villages along the Donetsk and Luhansk region, Voices of Children provides a variety of services like art therapy, video storytelling, mobile youth psychologists, and more. If you'd like to help or learn more about Voices of Children and their critical work, please visit voices.org.ua/en. Thank you for listening.